I'm Anna Webb. This is A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr Binks. You know that before the pandemic, there wasn't much poop at all on the pavement. But it really seems that some dog owners have put their foot in it recently by not picking up their dog's poop. And it is becoming a problem, not just because it's unpleasant, but it could be bad for the environment too. So that's why we're jumping Zoom to talk to vet and environmental warrior Andrew Prentice to find out just how much muck we're making. Andrew Prentice, welcome back to A Dog's Life. Well, it's very good to be back. Thank you very much for inviting me. We love your wisdom on uh, not least the veterinary front, but on the environmental aspects of living with dogs in a modern world. And um, something that's uh, struck not only me lately, right, is the massive proliferation of dog poo everywhere. I mean, you could even go as far as say, it's shit, Andrew. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure we're allowed to use words like that, are we? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Well, it's it's one of the one of the weird things about lockdown is is what it's done for pet ownership in this country. I mean, we we do have a lot of pets here. We have, you know, getting on for ten million dogs and about ten million cats. Um, and the latest figures I heard just the other week were that um, there's about three and a half million more dogs and cats in this country now than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. That's a that's a huge increase. That's about a so it's a, it's um, yeah it's about a fifteen percent increase in the pet population of this country, and and that you know it, it, people have done that because they're such good companions and it's great you know to you know when people have been locked up and have been on their own so much it's been a great um, consolation for them to have the animals as companions, um, but it also generates certain problems and one of the ones is the one we're talking about the unmentionable the unmentionable because you know about 10 years ago there was a lot of campaigning about dog mess and I think we really saw certainly in London things clean up massively I remember Islington Council had a dog crack squad going out and patrolling all of the Islington parks and there was hefty fines and it it really and they were in just you know plain clothes so you might get you know a policeman jumping out of a bush and going you have not picked up your dog's poo yeah, and people yeah. were really on it and the problem had seemed to have gone away but I just can't understand what why the new dog owners, as it were, can't pick up their dog's poo? Is it something to do with millennials? Because we believe that millennials have driven this massive 15% increase in dog ownership. Is it something to do with that, Andrew? Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, <laughs> I don't, I'm not quite sure. I, I would say that an awful lot of these, I and mean, this is a huge number of new pet owners, and talking to a lot of my veterinary colleagues in practice, I mean, they are saying that they're getting more people coming in who are more than usually clueless about how to actually look after dogs and cats. Um, and they, they, so I think we've, we've maybe got a shift in the population of dog owners. Um, and, you know, it's part and parcel of, of responsible dog ownership is you pick up your poo. You know, and it's an automatic reflex for experienced dog owners. Um, but I think a lot of the maybe, I don't know, we might be putting too much blame here, but I suspect that with this whole new population of inexperienced dog owners, maybe there is a problem there. 
But I did yeah. just when, when I knew I was going to come on and do this piece, I did just do the maths a little bit to try and figure out the quantities we're talking about. And um, you may be intrigued to know that the, the, the average size dog, if we take an average dog as weighing, say, 20 kilos, something like that across the country, that's about uh, it's about 350 grams of poo each. All right. A day. Right. Now, 350 grams multiplied by 10 million. Right, which is the dog population in the country. It oh. means that our dogs are producing about three and a half thousand tons of poop every single day. Crumbs, gosh. And three and a half, a three and a half thousand ton pile of dog poop is quite a, you know, it's obviously not all in your local park, but it's a lot of poop and it does have to be get it does have to be got rid of somehow or other. It really does. I mean, I guess we're paying the price a bit for local councils to clean a lot of it up, which could be considered a waste, as it were, of taxpayers' money and our council tax. And I've always thought, you know, it's really always the minority letting the majority down, Andrew. But, uh, you know, the worry is, do you think if this carries on, there is, you know, um, a public health issue going on with it? Uh, Well, yeah, potentially. Although I have to say, I think it's a little bit overplayed. I think it's more of a sort of an aesthetic thing rather than anything else. I mean, nobody really wants to tread in a pile of dog poo and it and it stinks and it looks ugly and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. it's are, not a good look, is it? When you arrive at a meeting with um, you know, thick tread shoes and you've just accidentally trodden in one. And no, it's, yeah. It reminds no. me a little bit. Do you remember the Bart Simpson cartoon? Where yes. he puts the dog poo inside the paper bag, sets fire to the paper bag, and puts it on the neighbor's doorstep. So you come out and stamp on the paper bag to put the fire out, and of course get poop all over your shoe. But um, anyway, well, there was all that sort of naming and shaming going on, where you know people would post dog poo through letter- people's letter boxes. You know, if they knew. Yeah, I mean the sort of shaming. I mean, I see this around here as well. That, that you know the purple fluorescent spray or the pink fluorescent spray, where. You know, dog poo on the pavement gets the spray on it to, to just to show that somebody has noticed. Um, and although it's not immediately traceable back to the person who deposited it, nonetheless, it's a sort of social marker that actually that's not really acceptable. But it is morally mandatory, as you say. To go back to your question, um, the question is, is there a public health risk? And if we think from a medical perspective, um, the one thing that people worry about um, is, is worms because uh, a lot of dogs and cats um, are able to carry intestinal worms, intestinal parasites. And those intestinal parasites can potentially infect people. But, and, and sorry, and, and, there's, and there's quite a lot of hysteria about that. And it's obviously, this is a fact, which is, which is you know, made the most of, shall we say, by the big pharmaceutical companies who would love to have all these dogs and cats treated for worms as often as possible. The reality is that intestinal roundworms in dogs and cats is a problem in puppies and kittens. And for most dogs, um, roundworms are not a health problem from, from about six months of age onwards. That said, if you do have a dog that has these intestinal parasites and they go and poo in a public place, um, they are, it is possible for them to, for the infectious part of the worm to be in that poo. And if you've got a kid that plays around in that area and puts their hand in it or treads in it or somehow then gets to that child's mouth, which sounds revolting, but it can happen, then there is a theoretical possibility of a child getting infected. And this this is the reason that parks often have dog-free areas, is to prevent that happening. 
but actually the numbers are tiny. They really are tiny. Um, and we're talking, we're talking of maybe 100 cases of human infection a year in the UK. Now, out of a population of 70 million people, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny number. But if it's your child, it's a pretty big number. Of course. But this is why, you know, dog owners need to shape up, you know, and realise that this is part of it. But do you think some of the reticence to pick up the poo is that, generally speaking, a lot of poo that I see around, unfortunately, is kind of quite soft and difficult to pick up. And maybe that's really off-putting to people. Whereas, you know, I've been blessed with feeding my dogs on a raw, complete balanced diet all their lives. So my dog's poop is is kind of firm, it's small, it's generally dark, and it's actually really easy to pick up. It doesn't really smell, it doesn't spill over the edge of the bag or anything like that. So could it be something to do with the consistency of poop? And could that relate to what dogs are eating at the moment, Andrew? Well, I, yes, I mean, anecdotally, I, we saw that all the time. You know, we would often advise people on the diet, we'd advise almost everybody on the diet, but we would, I, you know, in, in my time, I put huge numbers of dogs from commercial diets, most of which are fairly carbohydrate rich, across onto raw food diets for a variety of different reasons. And it was very, very common for the owners to come back to us you know, at the, at the next visit and say, oh my God, what happened? You know, he's just crapping little bullets now. It used to be a great big, you know, stinking fetid pile. And now, you know, eating eating raw meat, eating bones, uh, actually they poop little tiny fragrant little pellets, which are really, really easy to pick up. And um, it makes that aspect of it uh, certainly easier. That said, that said, of course, I mean, the whole, the whole raw food feeding is, is a contentious issue, left, right and centre. But, uh, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. Yeah, you know, but why is it contentious, Andrew? I mean, it's something I've been doing for um, 20 years now, feeding my dogs raw. I would never dream of feeding them in, other, in any other way. I mean, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm not going to name any names, but there's a couple of prescription dry foods, okay? And when you look at the ingredients, it, it's, quite, it's quite bizarre, really. There isn't actually any meat in there, you know, and then you've got to consider the processing of the food that might take out more nutrients and the addition of synthetic minerals and vitamins and so on and then considering the voluminous kind of poo that that this food tends to create could it be that the big poo is because not much of the food is actually being absorbed isn't you know that term bioavailability Andrew that's quite big at the moment in nutrition you know so contrary to that you know your your raw fed dogs have very small poo very firm it it might sort of you know imply that more of that food is bioavailable for the dog so less of it comes out the other end yeah I mean (laughs) It's difficult to, just to, to know exactly what the sort of the biochemistry of all, of all that is. I mean, uh, I think the reality is that the majority of dogs that I've seen on a raw diet, they tend to have really small, firm, easy to manage stools. That's it. That's the story. But of course, this then throws out all sorts of other other issues as, as to, you know, the health issue, the environmental issue. Um, you know, what's the best way to feed to feed all these dogs? Um uh, I mean, dogs and cats are well, cats are what they call obligate carnivores, so they are obliged to eat meat. They don't they don't have the enzymes necessary to to digest a vegetarian and vegan food. They will be missing stuff. Dogs um, 
they, for a very, very long time, have been knocking around humans. And as they made what looks like the transition from wolf to dog, um, they have developed, or in parallel with this, they've been developing more of the enzymes to be able to digest um, starches. And starch is the stuff, the grains and all the stuff that we eat. We think humans have been eating starch for, well, they, they, found, they found the remnants of starch in, in fireplaces that date back 100 to 150,000 years, so a really, really long time. Dogs, well, wolves initially, and then what became dogs have been hanging around us for a very, very long time. And the ones that developed enzymes for breaking down starch survived better scavenging on our food leftovers. So that's I, that the way I see, I'm not a creationist. That's the way I see things having developed. So you do have a situation where dogs actually, um, most of them can quite happily um, digest starches. Um, but I'm not a big fan of heavily processed food in the same way I'm not a big fan of eating heavily processed food myself. And it's as simple as that. You know, I don't eat a diet of burgers and chicken nuggets and turkey Twizzlers and all that kind of nonsense. Um, I don't feel very good if I do eat any of it, so I basically don't. I try and eat a good fresh diet. I try and eat a lot of stuff that's raw. Um, and I think our dogs do better on that too. Yes. But, the, but, the, but the flip side, sorry, I'm going on a bit here, but the flip side of that, of course, is that there is an environmental footprint associated with that. And there is some data out there suggesting that as much as 20% of the meat that is produced actually is eaten by pets. Yeah, I know. So we need to make a decision. You know, it's one of those risk-benefit things, isn't it? The, the, the benefit to us is great because we love having dogs and cats and there's such good companionship and they get out of the house and they, you know, all the, tick all the boxes for good, good, good. Um, but they do eat a lot of meat. And the downside of that is we are facing up to an environmental crisis. Yeah, but the, the thing is, well, how I see it, Andrew, is, is that us humans being true omnivores, yeah. I mean, you know, people are saying, banding about now, that dogs are omnivores. Now, whilst, yes, they do have some amylase, the actual thing is dogs can have between 4 to 20 amylase genes compared to a wolf who has two copies of the yeah. amylase gene. We have about 20 something like that. So they're, they're sort of sitting in the middle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, but you know, at the end of the day, a carnivorous gut is one that's short. It's very acidic. It's actually totally a dog's digestive system is physiologically completely different to ours. We can't compare it. Ours is pH. Theirs is acidic. Theirs is mm. short. Ours is long. We produce amylase in our mouth. They produce a tiny bit in their pancreas. And yeah. it's, it's all about nutrients, isn't it? Really? Mm. I mean, to mm. making people thrive like you you choose a diet that helps you thrive I'm you know on your fence on that I don't mm. eat meat but I would never dream of denying my dog the key in, you know ingredient full of nutrients that dogs you know do need to thrive on you know they need amino acids yeah. Yeah, yeah. which can only be found in red meat. So I postulate this, that all humans should become vegan, really, or vegetarian, yeah. Yeah. to allow us to benefit from the, the huge great things that dogs and cats, you know, bring to us. Yes, yes, I, 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 yes, Broad, broadly speaking. I mean, I'm, you know, um, 
veganism is a, is a personal choice and I, I absolutely respect it. I'm, I'm not a vegan myself, but I'm, I find I'm, I eat less and less meat actually as time, as time goes by, I, um, you know, and environmentally, there is a, there's a role for herbivores. So herbivores being the cows and the sheep and to a lesser extent in this country, goats, but you know, these are the animals, they, they can eat, eat grass, eat herbs, and, um, and they'll produce either meat or milk. And, and environmentally, there is a role for them because they are good for the soil in many, many ways. Um, but I think you're right. We do need to make some choices uh, as to how many pets we're going to have, how we feed them and how we feed ourselves in order to make the whole equation balance. And I think that, that we've had this, what looks like a population explosion in these last few months. And I do think we need to think about how we manage that, whether that's something we're going to encourage and allow that to, to increase more or whether we're just going to take a little bit of a step back and go, oh, blimey, hang on, that's maybe a bit too many. Because our human population, the population of the globe, inevitably will continue to grow for about another 30 to 35 years. When we look at all the population curves, our population is going to, it will peak later on this century, but there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. It's going to keep growing. Um, but maybe we just all have to be a little bit rational here and think, hang on, there's only so much space. You know? um, yeah. and, and, and the issues are that the planet is warming up ridiculously because we've cut down most of the Amazon at the moment. Not only oh. for livestock, people forget, I think, to be honest, Andrew, that crops grow on land. Okay, and I, yeah. I spent two years living in the Shires and um, yeah. I lived near some very big fields that you couldn't move on them, right? I mean, they are planted so thickly. Yeah. I think it was wheat he was growing. Yeah. Uh, Molly, my bull terrier, famously got lost in that field <laughs> for 12 hours. It was a red alert emergency, to be honest. Um, yeah. Anyway, but, but you know, they're thick. You know, humans can't go in between the wheat. It's packed with wheat. So, And these are GMO crops, so yes. insects don't like these. No, I think we have a lot of change coming there. I think the farming industry in this country is going to be changing quite a lot in the next you know, generation or so for a variety of reasons, for environmental reasons, for financial reasons, and... and um, you're quite right. I mean, there's a lot of, of very dense farming for which there's very little public access. And, and the farmers are, are sort of kind of demonized a bit by public opinion. And they're pretty sensitive about that because they don't really like it any more than anybody else. Um, and I think, I think our diet is changing. And I think the way that we see the countryside is changing. And I think things about access and about biodiversity and wildlife and all those things, I think our attitudes to those things are, are changing. I tell you what, though, I just wish there was better leadership from the top. And I don't know about you, but the G7 summit that just happened, the idea that they serve a beach barbecue of beef, first of all, and lobster, and then have an air display from jet aeroplanes. Oh, yeah. you know, and these are guys who are meant to be leading the charge to save the planet and save the environment. And you just think, talk about wrong messaging. Anyway, well, that's a bit off topic, but that's no, just no, it's not. It. It's not because it 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 relates actually to to something else. You know, so we're talking 
you know, all sorts of things that can affect our relationships with, with, with dogs and, yeah. you know, indeed whether we should have them at all. There, I mean, on Good Morning Britain the other week, there was some environmentalist, Andrew, suggesting that anyone who's got a dog at the minute shouldn't replace them. You know, when they die, that's that. Such is their damage to the planet. But then, you see, you postulate... What on earth would happen to our global economy if there were no pets? <laughs> well, I mean, what would happen? What would happen? I mean, the pet food industry is worth a fortune. Yeah. And, you know, dare I say, it, I, you know, I know you, you know, you are a vet by, by initial trade and, and so on, a very good one, my vet. And I so, Andrew, recently <laughs> wished you hadn't retired. I could tell <laughs> you. I was like, if only Andrew hadn't retired. If only Andrew hadn't retired. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's all right. Never mind. Um, you go. <laughs> My point is, what would the pharmaceutical industry do without pets? What would it well, do? Yes. I, but, you know, you also have to look at what, what the pharmaceutical industry is up to. You know, like what? Are... Inventing a COVID vaccine for dogs. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of things going on, which, you know, arguably we could do without. Uh, you know, and if, if the market changes, then the pharmaceutical industry will change as well. And actually, the bit in that industry that's a, that is, is reliant on dogs and cats is relatively small. The average person in the UK, I mean, a, an individual's carbon footprint, so the amount of sort of, of, of uh, global warming emissions that our lifestyle is responsible for, typically it's around 10 to 12 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. Okay. The mm. dog's about four, three or 400 kilos. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very significant, very, very significantly less because dogs don't drive cars and they don't have computers and they don't heat, you know, we, we do all that stuff. So the, the, the environmental footprint of dogs is identifiable and it's significant, but it's tiny compared to ours. So we, if we get our house in order and if we really work on cutting our environmental footprint, then there's still plenty of space for dogs and cats and i think this is dodging the, the real issue which is that these guys are incredibly good for our mental health absolutely well and and physical fitness and um, physical fitness and, and the, well the two are intimately linked but i mean in, sure. in the world we live in there are more and more people who live on their own for a variety of different reasons and that's a sort of social change that has been going on for quite some time and actually dogs and cats they're great they're great. They get you out of the house. They give you the they give you the excuse to talk to people in the park. You know, if you wander, if I wander around as a middle aged man talking to men to people in the park without a dog, I get myself arrested. <laughs> but if you've got a dog, it gives you a free license to talk to anybody. Gosh, yes, I know. You, look, Andrew, you're preaching to the converted. I wouldn't like to live if I couldn't have a dog. You know, oh. and I think oh. to have that deprived from me, I don't believe it's a right to own a dog. I believe it's a yeah. privilege to own a dog. But to take that privilege away from me when I feel my carbon footprint is actually extremely small. Yeah. You know, because I live in a small flat and I drive a small car, but I also haven't had any children. Yeah, you've done your bit. Yeah. yeah, you've got to make your life worth living somehow. Yeah, but you can put a number <laughs> on it. It would be interesting to put a number on your carbon footprint and see what it actually is. It's probably bigger than you think, actually. And I think I would encourage everybody, actually. There are all sorts of um, carbon footprinting apps and, and software and stuff. It's really, really easy to find. The WWF does a really good one. You put in details about your life and about your lifestyle, and it tells you what your carbon footprint is. And it's really illuminating to see where you as an individual are burning up that carbon. And yeah, it's really no, helpful then to try and say, well, my God, is that 
if that's the story, then maybe I turn the heating down a bit. Maybe I don't, you know, wash the clothes quite so often. Maybe I don't I think about my food. I think about my travel and I don't, you know, it's, it's information is everything on these things. Well, it is, it is. But I think an awareness, how to keep your dog's um, carbon pore print down can help, you know, yeah. like maybe minimise insecticides, environmental stressors. Because the last podcast we did together, of course, was talking about how flea and worm treatments are wangling their way cleverly into our waterways and, 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 and how, yeah. wildlife at front end of wildlife, really. Birds, mm. bees, dragonfly and so on. So there, it's it's a very complicated, but you know, maybe as well, dog owners shouldn't buy anything plastic. Well, yes. I mean, I think these these things do apply. I mean, on the on the um, you know, the, the pesticide issue, the, the parasite treatments, it's well, we're actually, I've, I've, we've got a big research project going on this now. I, I will be very, very pleased to be invited back in a few months' time to present some of our findings on that one, because that will be that will be very interesting. What research project is this then, Andrew? Well, it's just really coming out of a concern about the quantities of pesticides that we're using in, in general. I mean, in the UK, what was the figure I saw? It's about 17,000 tonnes of pesticides a year. Um, are being used and some of those are veterinary ones and so as a vet I think well I one one little bit that I can influence maybe is to have a really close look at what we, we as a profession are doing and just to make sure you know do we really need to use all the products we do or are we taking the sort of um, uh, are we just being precautionary and say oh we'll just treat these animals to that I think I'm I'm trying to persuade the profession that actually we, there should be a move more towards testing rather than treating. And let's yeah. just, we take you, you come in with your dog or your cat and let's ask the question, well, how likely is it this dog or cat from their lifestyle has parasites or their symptoms? Are they ill at all? Do we need to do anything? Is there actually a health risk to the animal? Is there a health risk to the family that looks after this animal? Um, should we be testing? And so a whole series of stages we should perhaps go through before we reach for the packet of parasite treatment pills because the yeah. reality is insect populations in this country are in free fall and some of the insect populations are well some of them are going extinct some of them in general are down by as much as 75 percent in my lifetime songbirds some of the songbirds that feed on those insects the populations are down by over 90 percent you know and it it's sort of uh, it's kind of an invisible problem in the sense you walk through the park and you think, oh, it's lovely and green and there's trees and grass and flowers and da da da. There's nothing living there. And this yeah. is terrifying. No, terrifying. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, you know. And I, well, I'm proud to say I do test and treat. Yeah, good. I mean, we need to make it really easy for pet owners and for their vets. Andrew, guess what, though? It goes back for the worms. It goes back to where we started this conversation. In order to test to see if your dog has any worms, which, as you said, you know, is highly unlikely. I can um, vouch for that in that, not that I've got worms, but in that my dogs are tested and treated for worms every quarter, right? Um, every three months. And they've never had any worms ever. And oh, that's my Prudence, my bull terrier, that, you know, she runs around, she rolls in fox poop, you know, she has eaten fox poop because that's yeah. what dogs do actually you know and no worms ever and it's so simple to do but you've got to pick up your poo to be able to do that you've got to pick up the poo just, 
yeah, yeah. pick up the poo again it goes back to that you know so yeah. you can send off three little samples which all sounds a bit grim to people but if you pick up your poo anyway it's no big no, deal. no big deal whatsoever and i think it does work out cheaper i don't know because i've never bought a worm or andrew but um i think you know it's 30 pounds every quarter right so that's 10 pounds a month which oh gosh well no hang on a commercial product must be more than 10 pounds a month so- the, the, well there's, there's so much there's so much range i mean there, there are different prices at testing laboratories there's all so many different products i mean there's about 70 different products out there on the market at the moment and there's huge difference in prices and um you know this is another area where i'm quite optimistic that we'll see some significant change over the next few years. And the British Veterinary Association at the moment is actively trying to figure out how they can craft a new policy. They recognise the fact that we have a major biodiversity environmental problem. We need to do things differently. The question is, how do we do that in a responsible way so we don't get animals getting sick, we don't get people getting sick, um, but we work to actually protect the environment a little bit. They're working on it. They get my absolute full support in, in that. And we're just trying to gather more data and information for them now so that we can do it as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. Brilliant. Well, and that's all your your group, isn't it? It's called Vets Sustain. Vets Sustains, yes. That's that's definitely one of, that's one of the groups. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Brilliant, Andrew. Well, um, gosh, well, let me know when you've got the results of that and, yeah. um, you know, come back on. And in the meantime, I guess the message is, you know, <laughs> pick up, pick up your poo, pick up your dog's poo. It's not shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it, once you get in the habit of it, it's really it's really not that difficult. There are bins all over the place and it's just part of the deal, you know. Part of the deal, you know, maybe diet will help the process be um, less squidgy and stinky, but it's up to everyone to work it out and treat their dog as a sentient being, which they are. Because dogs get ashamed if you don't pick up their poo. You know, I mean, Mr. Binks, my little dog, he did it this morning. You know, he's doing a, a poo on the pavement by a tree, you know, before we hit the main drag near me. And he always looks up at me and I go, no, it's OK. It's OK. You know, obviously, I've got a bag. <laughs> And I have to take the bag out, show him I've got a bag, and then he does his poo. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah. funny about it. He has those, those. He has those triggers, all those associations. And if you don't have the bag, it, yeah, he has to be in the right place, and the bag has to be present. Then he can take a poo. Exactly, he can relax to take. Yeah. A- <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's um, dogs for you. They're they're so clever. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank yeah. you, Andrew. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to chat. Well, that's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Okay, I'm sorry I told Andrew about how you like to do your business, but it was for the show. And yes, you're right. It is time for Woof of the Week. <laughs> Owning a dog comes with responsibility, and one of the main ones is cleaning up after them. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it too. If you did, please follow us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again to Andrew Prentice as ever. Thanks also to my very patient producer, Mike Hansen, and Pod People Productions for the theme music and production. Follow them at Pod People UK. For more about me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs or visit my website, annaweb.co.uk for tips on training, nutrition or just to have a nose around my shop. 
What's that, Binksy? Yes, A Dog's Life with Anna Webb will be back in your feed next Sunday. So see you then. In the meantime, if you want to vote for A Dog's Life with Anna Webb for the Listener's Choice Award at this year's British Podcast Awards, it's easy. The link is in the show notes. Bye for now.